All right, we are back. We should stress that this sort of interview, one conducted with Chalmers Johnson, is the sort of thing you're pretty much going to have to go to a community-based radio station to hear, unfortunately. Chalmers Johnson was the president of the Japan Policy Research Institute. For many years, he was a consultant for the Central Intelligence Agency. Nemesis came out in 2006. In the current climate in America, with the clown in the White House, so much of political writing is focused on him. But the fact of the matter is, we have some problems with our institutions, problems which by no means have gone away in the last 13 years. And I think what I'd like to do is quote a bit from Nemesis to flesh out France's interview with Chalmers Johnson. So please allow me to do so. In the prologue, Johnson said, I never planned to write three books about the decline and fall of the American empire, but events intervened. In March 2000, well before 9-11, I published Blowback, based on my years of teaching and writing about East Asia. I had become convinced by then that some secret U.S. government operations and acts in distant lands would come back to haunt us. Blowback does not mean just revenge, but rather retaliation for covert illegal violence that our government has carried out abroad that it keeps totally secret from the American public, even though such acts are seldom secret among the peoples on the receiving end. It was a term invented by the Central Intelligence Agency and first used in its after-action report about the 1953 overthrow of the elected government of Premier Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. This coup brought to power the U.S.-supported Shah, who would, in 1979, be overthrown by Iranian revolutionaries and Islamic fundamentalists. The Ayatollah Khomeini replaced the Shah and installed the predecessors of the current anti-American government in Iran. This would be one kind of blowback from America's first venture into illegal, clandestine, quote-unquote, regime change. But as the attacks of September 11, 2001 showed us all too graphically, hardly the only one. My book, Blowback, was not much noticed in the U.S. until after 9-11, when my suggestion that our covert policies abroad might be coming back to haunt us gained new meaning. Many Americans began to ask, as did President Bush, why do they hate us? The answer was not that some countries hate us because of our democracy, wealth, lifestyle, or values, but because of the things our government did to various peoples around the world. Johnson notes at this point that in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, he and many others, CIA analyst types, were at first quite unsure as about who it was committing these terrorist acts. He said, I talked with friends and colleagues around the nation about what group or groups might have carried out such attacks. The veterans of our largest clandestine war, when we recruited armed and sent into battle Islamic Mujahideen freedom fighters in Afghanistan against the USSR in the 1980s, did not immediately come to mind. Most of us thought of Chileans because of the date. September 11, 1973 was the day the CIA secretly helped General Augusto Pinochet overthrow Salvador Allende, the leftist elected president in Chile. Others thought of the victims of the Greek colonels we put in power in 1967, or Okinawans venting their rage over the 60-year-old occupation of their island by our military. Johnson notes that many had a reason to attack us. He goes on, The Bush administration did everything in its power to divert us from thinking that our own actions might have had something to do with such suicidal attacks on us. 
Johnson notes that Bush never once allowed that the U.S. might bear some responsibility for what happened on 9-11. In a 2004 commencement address to the Air Force Academy, for instance, Bush said, No act of America explains terrorist violence, and no concession of America could appease it. The terrorists who attacked our country on September 11th were not protesting our policies. They were protesting our existence. But, noted Chalmers Johnson, Osama bin Laden made clear why he attacked us. In a videotape statement broadcast by Al Jazeera on October 7, 2001, a few weeks after the attacks, he gave three reasons for his enmity against the U.S. The U.S. imposed sanctions against Iraq from 1991 to 9-11. In his tape, he said, One million Iraqi children have thus far died, although they did not do anything wrong. The second reason was American policies toward Israel and the occupied territories. Said bin Laden, quote, I swear to God that America will not live in peace before peace reigns in Palestine, unquote. And of course, the third reason was the stationing of U.S. troops and the building of military bases in Saudi Arabia. Now, the last thing we're going to do on this program is offer up support for Osama bin Laden. But it should be noted that he said he had reasons and he told us what they were. It is important not to lose sight of that. Noted Johnson and Nemesis, the attempt to disguise or avoid the policy-based reason for 9-11 fed the rantings of Christian fundamentalists in the United States. Televangelist Pat Robertson, later joined by Jerry Falwell, declared that liberal civil liberties groups Feminists, homosexuals, and abortion rights supporters bear some responsibility for the terrorist attacks because their actions have turned God's anger against America, at which point they launched a hate campaign against all Muslims. We would interject at this point that 13 years later, that does not seem to have abated. Johnson goes on, because Americans generally failed to consider seriously why we had been attacked on 9-11, the Bush administration was able to respond in a way that made the situation far worse. I believed at the time, said Johnson, and feel no differently five years later, that we should have treated the attacks as crimes against the innocent, not as acts of war. We should have proceeded against al-Qaeda the same way we might have against organized crime. It would have been wise to call what we were doing an emergency, as the British did in fighting the Malay guerrillas in the 1950s, not a war. The day after 9-11, Simon Jenkins, the former editor of the Times of London, insightfully wrote, The message of yesterday's incident is that for all its horror, it does not and must not be allowed to matter. It is a human disaster, an outrage, an atrocity, an unleashing of madness of which the world will never be rid. But it is not politically significant. It does not tilt the balance of world power one inch. It is not an act of war. America's leadership of the West is not diminished by it. The cause of democracy is not damaged unless we choose to let it be damaged. Johnson notes, had we followed Jenkins' advice, we could have retained the cooperation and trust of our democratic allies, remained the aggrieved party of 9-11, built criminal cases that would have stood up in any court of law, and won the hearts and minds of populations that al-Qaeda was trying to mobilize. We could have entirely avoided contravening the Geneva Convention concerning the treatment of prisoners of war, and never have headed down the path of torturing people we picked up almost at random in Afghanistan and Iraq. The U.S. government would have had no need to lie to its own citizens and the rest of the world about the non-existent nuclear threat posed by Iraq, 
or carry out a phony preventative war against that country. Anyway, I think it's clear <laughs> Chalmers Johnson is not going to turn up interviewed on the nightly news, or rather would have. He has, he has since passed. He closed his prologue by noting, I remain hopeful that Americans can still rouse themselves to save our democracy. Well, we hope so too. All right, at this point, let us uh, do what we said we would do at the top of the show and air our interview with Franz Kossing, at least, well, my interview with Franz Kossing when I was occupying Jeffrey Callison's chair over at the Insight program on Capital Public Radio. Two weeks ago, Professor Howard Zinn, the noted historian and social activist, passed away at age 87. Writing in the Sacramento News and Review, Fred Bronfman, who met him in 1968 in Laos when Zinn was on his way to Hanoi to escort home POWs, said, Our emails, phone conversations, and visits over these 40 years were always gracious, always interested, and always interesting. Over the past decade, local radio host Franz Kassing spoke with Howard Zinn for a total of about 10 on-air hours for her program, It's About You, on KDVS. By way of disclosure, I should note that I also have a show on KDVS, which is how I've come to know Franz. Here to talk about her extensive conversations with the late Dr. Howard Zinn is Franz Kassing. Franz, welcome to Insight. Oh, thank you so much, Douglas, and it is such a privilege to talk about this great man. Well, uh, first question, how did you get Howard Zinn to come on It's About You? It was deceptively easy, <laughs> because I just went to the best clearinghouse for uh, public affairs hosts who are of a progressive bent, and I went to the Institute for Public Accuracy. It was started by Norman Solomon, so I saw that Howard Zinn was available for a limited number of interviews. Well, your program is unusual in that you generally devote the entire hour to one guest. So uh, was, was Zinn pleased to be given such a lengthy time span to work with? Actually, he said he was grateful. <laughs> As he grew older, of course, his time was more and more limited. But he was gracious enough to even grant us some time last year. Well, Zinn's most famous work is The People's History of the United States. In it, he offered up his version of history from the perspective, he said, of the oppressed. And I can imagine in uh, the many hours of chats you had with him that he told uh, numerous tales from history. And can, can you cite an example or two? You know, what he talked about, uh, our involvement in Iran. He also reminded us that we have caused a lot of victims over the years, including our assistance of the coup to depose Allende in Chile in 1973. He was also a social activist, so he seemed to always be moving back and forth from history to the present. When he taught at Spelman College, he mentioned uh, some of those experiences and also fighting on the front line of the civil rights movement and being jailed all the time and he said it was just something you have to do. And he was undaunted in the belief that we would all do this, given the opportunity, which always blew me away. So he not only wrote about history, he lived it and he integrated it in his way of doing everything. Well, yes, you, you mentioned his, his uh, work at Spelman College. That's a black women's college in Atlanta. This is in the early 60s. He was pretty much front row center for the civil rights upheavals of the era. I was sort of uh, 
Curious to note that the administration actually wound up firing for his social activism against segregation. I actually talked mostly about present-day history with him because there was so much to go on. You know, uh, when he talked about George W. Bush, he was saddened and dismayed that the man was in power to begin with. And he just was really concerned that everybody was so delighted to make fun of the way he spoke or this and that, thereby deflecting from what we could do about his actual policy. So I gather he wasn't a fan of late-night television, Saturday Night Live and such. (laughs) Well, he was a fan of everybody. But anybody who would make fun of things rather than act on it when they were supposed to be uh, speaking of politics, he was not willing to support that. But people who were, whose job was to make fun of things, that was fine. There's a distinction. I know at one point he said he hated, he hated to use the term pacifism related to himself because he didn't feel you should be passive, you should be active, but you may want to oppose, say, the war. He was really, really adamant that everybody should take to the streets. I think it was one of his greatest chagrin that the past year people have stayed home willing to give Obama a pass because they voted for him. He was not a fan of Obama. Well, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Iran. I know that uh, Zinn was always determined to present views he thought the public needed to consider. And I I wanted to play a clip uh, where you had him talk about U.S. relations with Iran, which, of course, is something that still reverberates in international relations. Some history would be helpful. We should know, for instance, that in 1953, the United States secretly overthrew the democratically elected government in Iran mm. uh, and established the Shah of yes. Iran, yes. Uh, a dictator, a Saddam Hussein-like person, mm. established him in power in Iran. It's very important to know that because the people of Iran know that. They remember that. They remember mm. the role the United States has played in Iran, that the United States was so hungry for oil and for controlling the oil that when the elected president Mossadegh in Iran nationalized the oil fields and threw the oil corporations into consternation. The United States immediately acted to remove him. They remember that. Well, Franz, I suppose that's classic Zinn pointing out that although we are frustrated with Iran's behavior at times, so too is Iran frustrated, maybe to say the least, with the United States. Not only that, we are directly responsible for the people who are in power there now. He was absolutely shocked at our short-term memory (laughs) and our delight at uh, wanting to believe in the myth of the conquering hero at the expense of any of their victims. He, He just could not understand that. So I had asked him, What do you think of our saber-rattling with Iran at this point? And he said, I can just imagine George W. Bush holding a saber in front of the mirror in the White House. (laughs) And by then, I'm giggling. But no, he goes on, and he said, I also see him running out into the garden to fight war with the Bushes out in the garden. And it's That's when he stopped himself and said the clip that you heard. And that's one of the things that was most interesting. 
he could laugh about things, and then he would zing you with some undeniable truth that really chilled you right there. Well, I, I was surprised to learn, Franz, that in World War II, Howard Zinn was actually a bombardier in the U.S. Army Air Force. Uh, he'd reportedly been eager to fight fascism, but I guess his firsthand experiences turned him into an anti-war activist for the rest of his life. And, and did, you, I, did you talk about those events? Yes, actually we did. And he said one of the things that harmed him the most is when he was ordered to bomb a German village after the war was declared over. And I'm surprised considering the amazing guests you've had and the work you've covered, Douglas, that you are even shocked at that. But that's what we did. We are a vengeful nation. Well, I, I know, Front, there's a famous story where he was, uh, he was asked, well, he, I guess, was one of the first bombing of Napalm near the end of the war. He bombed a city in France, even though uh, everyone, well, the Allies were in Germany. They were closing in on Berlin. It was only a matter of weeks before the war would end. Everybody knew that. And yet he was required, along with others, to, to drop Napalm on a French town, something that I think uh, affected him the rest of his life. I'm sure it did. Uh, he was very empathic. And I would absolutely urge anybody who wants to know more about his life to go rent his biography. You can't stay neutral on a moving train. Well, it is, it's unique, Franz. I know that after, after that, that napalm uh, bombing of that town in France, he, when he was a historian later, returned there to get some first-hand follow-up on, on, on what events he had, he had helped cause. Can you imagine the courage that took? I mean, that's, that's a courageous man. He was totally dedicated to the truth, but to everyone's truth, not just, like I said, the people in power. Definitely not about the people in power. He, when he, he did tell, you know, we talked about we're both dedicated to independent media, you and I, Douglas, and he spoke that first time we interviewed him after the attack on the World Trade Center. He said that Fox News, I believe, had asked him if he would be part as a historian of a town, town hall meeting to discuss the events and what possible meanings lay behind it, repercussions and so on. And Clearly, it had been a junior protect, production assistant that had asked him to do this, maybe because she had seen they had written a book about the history of the people of the United States, not knowing anything about the book. Uh-huh. So he tells me, laughingly, <laughs> he is laughing hysterically, and he said two days later, he gets a call from me top producer who says that they've changed their plans. <laughs> they've had a change of plans. And he said, oh, you're not having the town meeting anymore. And he knew what was going on, but he was toying with them. Right. And he said, no, they changed their plans about me. <laughs> and he thought that was hilarious, but he knew for the, he would never have been on the air for, to discuss this event. We're speaking with Franz Kossing, the host of KDVS's program, It's About You, about our extensive conversations with the late Howard Zinn. You just mentioned power. That, that was a recurring theme with Zinn. Let's play another clip you have uh, when he was discussing that question of who has the power. But in fact, citizens have the power 
we have the power uh, to threaten our representatives that we won't vote for them anymore. We have the power to withhold our support. We have the power mm -hmm. to withhold our taxes. Uh, we, if we are young people uh, mm -hmm. destined to be approached by recruiters and asked to serve in the army, then we as young people have the power to say, no, we will not serve in immoral war. The important thing to remember about power is that those people who have official power only have it so long as the rest of us obey them hmm. and are subservient to them. Once we withdraw our obedience, uh, they have no power anymore. That was a recurrent theme with Zinn, wasn't it? The, are those with power and those without? Yes. And it was dismay that more people could not assume their inherent power. Like he said in the clip, we all have it. It's easy. There's so many more of us. It was really befuddling to him, but he never ceased to believe. And he was such an empowerer, wasn't he? He never ceased to believe that we could reclaim that power. We should note that not everyone agreed with Howard Zinn's perspective on things. Uh, many historians were reportedly exasperated by what they thought of as his one-sided perspective on events. Uh, I, I sort of gather that he wasn't much troubled by this sort of criticism. Not in the least. <laughs> he would laugh it off, and he would say, well, tell that to the victims. And he, he was very, very eloquent in describing the suffering that had been caused by, let's say, Christopher Columbus. And he was probably the cause why Americans are not so ready to celebrate that holiday anymore. Uh, in your conversations with him, was there something that surprised you about, uh, about any of his views? No, not about his views. He, he, he basically had the same moral compass on everything. We're all brothers and sisters, but not in that twee way of showing it. He talked about everybody's right to have a life they choose to live. And so he never, he never surprised me that way. He surprised me at his vehemence to speak against the powers that be. He had no fear. What sort of feedback did you get from people uh, listening to your, your lengthy chats with him? Well, people were grateful. So I didn't get any nasty feedback. I remember going into an evening discussion that night and finding this elegant older woman. She actually squealed at the thought that I had spoken with Howard Sim. <laughs> you know, he, he was quite a charmer. Well, he, he was a charmer, and he also had quite a—you made met, passing mention of this dry sense of humor of his. Uh, is there something that he said that really sticks with you? Well, the fact that he, he is responsible for radicalizing so many people from my contemporaries to my contemporaries' parents, their children, and now their grandchildren. I am amazed at the breadth of his influence. Well, in closing, France, uh, Howard Zinn's friend Daniel Ellsberg said he was in my opinion, the best human being I've ever known, the best example of what a human can be and can do with their life. So I've got a final two-part question for you. Did you come to regard him as a friend, and, and, and do you find him to be a role model? Well, I would never presume to regard him as a friend, though he made everyone feel 
like he was their friend. And I guess that's what surprised me. On air, he would say things that would make it sound like we were the best of friends. <laughs> and it's like I would blush every time. <laughs> Not only do I regard him as a role model, but because of the way he treated you, and I know I'm not the only one here, the way he treated you, he made you feel like you had to become better than you are just to deserve the privilege of speaking with him. Well, we've been talking about the late Howard Zinn with Franz Kassing, the host of KDVS's public affairs program, It's About You. Franz had a had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Zinn for something like 10 hours over the past decade. France, uh, uh, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Douglas. It's always a privilege. It was nice to take part in that celebration of life with a lot of fine people at this community-based radio station. Gil Metavoy, Robin Fox, Bill Wagman, Elisa Howe, Emily Tung, Mick Mucus, Ron Glick, Dr. Andy Jones, and former GMs Ben Johnson and Drake Martinet. Drake especially was able to demonstrate that spirit of giving that we so loved France for by giving yours truly a lift back from Davis to the Bay Area. Thanks, Drake. And I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. She's gone, but she's definitely not forgotten. Franz Kassing, thank you for the example you set for all of us. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who sets an example that probably should be avoided. Just kidding. I must say, given my propensity to make cracks like that, I can recall many occasions uh, saying something that would have Franz cast me a look. Anyway, sorry, Franz, I just couldn't help myself, but I, I will try to do better. This has been Radio Parallax. Sadly, our hiatus will continue starting next week, but we do expect to see you again in September. Boy, his horse was fast as polished.